He who believes in the Son has eternal life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we go to the word of God this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, and as we study the history of your word, the history of the inspiration of your word, the writing of your word down through the ages from Moses and Job all the way to the writing of Revelation, and we study the preservation of your word, we know that this is great evidence that it is exactly what it claims to be, and that is your very revelation of yourself to us and your plan of salvation and your plan of the spiritual life to us so that we might grow close to you and that we might learn to live for you in light of our eternal destiny to serve you, to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and on into eternity. And, Father, as we study your word, we are mindful that this is how we are to grow and how we are to be prepared, that we might be strong uh, warriors for the truth and strong warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to give you just a little quick review from last time as we focus on the topic in Ephesians 1.13. We may not get to 14, probably won't, talking about being sealed by means of the Spirit. Last time, as we looked at Ephesians 1.11, we saw that the significance of this passage is that it teaches that the church-age believer is made a new possession of God's in Christ. The passage reads, as I've translated it, in addition, it was through union with him we were made his possession by his laying claim to us according to his purpose, who works all these things according to the counsel of his will. For those of you who weren't here, maybe looking at your Bible and scratching your head and saying, well, that seems really different from what's there, I went through the passage last time and showed that when you look at the NET translation, the American Standard Version of, I believe that's 1901, uh, Gordon Olson's translation, we have some of the copies of some of his Resurrection New Testament available for people if they, if they want them. Along with a number of others, they recognize that the passive voice of, of the verb that is uh, translated, we have obtained, uh, indicates that uh, that it is not that that uh, we have uh, that God has uh, inherited uh, that we have obtained an inheritance. Excuse me. That is uh, the way it is translated in most translations. But as a passive, it means that that we were made His possession. That's the idea in inheritance. It relates to ownership, and not only is it a more accurate translation based on the grammar and the syntax of the passage, but using the word possession also fits the context a lot better. Because as we will see, as, as, as Paul seems to be building 
uh, to a crescendo in these these in this blessing statement, this bercha of three through fourteen. What we see is that that he's going to he's using more and more words that relate to this concept that we are now owned by God, and we've studied this before. We are slaves of our sin nature when we are born. When we are saved, we are to become slaves of righteousness. We are slaves one way or the other. You are either a slave of your sin nature or you are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave to righteousness. There's no middle ground. You can't just say, well, I'm going to be my own slave. Well, that just means you're going to be a slave to your sin nature. And this idea of God's ownership goes back to the concept of redemption, which was introduced in the second section of this blessing statement. When we read in him, meaning in Christ, we have uh, redemption. Redemption is paying the purchase price, and it often is related to the purchase price of a slave in the slave market. It is purchasing something in the market, we are born into the slave market of sin, and when Christ paid the penalty, that is the payment of that of that price. So that we are, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. And so this concept that the believer becomes uh, the possession of God runs throughout all of the spiritual life teaching in the New Testament. So... We translated this, it was through union with him that is in him, that, that, that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, when through baptism by the Holy Spirit we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection and entered into him, we were made his possession. So God makes us his possession, and he does that by laying claim, and as we studied the word, uh, that is often translated predestination, the Greek word is praharizo, we saw that that doesn't mean predestined in the sense of God determining whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, but it has that idea of being uh, foreordained to a purpose, and that's what this is talking about, our purpose in Christ. And furthermore, the one of the uh, the only use, actually, of this word in classical Greek literature, non-biblical literature, was a word where it's used to indicate laying claim to a piece of property, to a piece of real estate. And so that is a much better word. And see, this leads us to where we're going in verse 13, that we have been sealed. And sealing was a way of indicating ownership and possession in the ancient world. So when you start in, uh, start translating all of these words in a consistent manner, then suddenly you get a different understanding of this passage, and it's laying that specific groundwork for us. It is parallel, as we saw last week, to God's work within the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel. We, there is a temporary hold on God's plan for Israel during this church age. And in this church age, Paul is showing in the first three chapters of Ephesians that there is a new people of God, that they are uh, made up of both Jew and Gentile who are equal members of the body of Christ. And so there's a, an analogy with the Old Testament people of God in Deuteronomy 4.20 they were referred to as God's people, an inheritance or a possession. So this same idea ran through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 9.26, uh, Israel was referred to as God's inheritance. And 9.29, again, God's inheritance, God's possession, that he chose them to be a people for himself. It was a corporate uh, choosing, not individual choosing for salvation, but a corporate choosing of the nation for a purpose. And then we saw in Deuteronomy 32:29 for the Lord's portion, and saw that the 
Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew word is a word meris. We've studied that before. It indicates that share or portion of an inheritance designated to somebody. For example, when the prodigal son came to his father, he said, give me my share or my portion of my inheritance, and then he squandered it. But he was still the father's son. He didn't lose his position in the family. He just lost that which was part of his inheritance. So this was the same idea in the Old Testament. The Lord's portion is his people, his inheritance, his his possession. And I put a note there at the bottom that the Hebrew word that's used in the text there is nahala, which means to give as a possession. And so this idea of Ownership and possession and share and inheritance are concepts that are all tied together. And we find these words being connected together. And sadly, there are few people who take the time to truly investigate the significance of that. And it's foundational to understanding who we are in Christ, who we are in our new role and our new position and our new responsibility as members of the body of Christ and how all of that fits together in terms of our future destiny as church-age believers, as those who are the bride of Christ to rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom. So we saw as a sort of a summary that this interpretation reinforces the idea of a corporate election, not an individual selection to salvation, and that it is in him. It is those who have trusted in Christ and are therefore placed in Christ, possessing his righteousness, that we are made his possession. Second, we saw that the idea of being made his possession fits very nicely with where the passage is headed, are being sealed by the Spirit, another metaphor for identifying uh, a possession, uh, a seal with something that was put on, on property to indicate ownership and to protect and provide security uh, for that possession. Third, it reinforces the teaching of eternal security. That is not so much a question that has come up within our congregation, but it is a, a question in many places. I know that when uh, I'm in, in Ukraine, this question always comes up among the students because there is no eternal security in the Greek Orthodox, I mean, Greek Russian Orthodox uh, environment, and there's none in the Russian Baptist Church. And I remember one time when I was over there speaking at, at a church in in Shatomer, uh, and um, I think Eager was doing the translating for me. But after the church, after it was over with, uh, we were down on the front row, and uh, there was prayer, and afterwards, Eager leaned over and said that the ladies behind me were saying, oh, no, not another one of those people who believes in eternal security. <laughs> so that is, uh, that is common there. So we get a lot of questions as, as professors that go over there on this particular issue. And it always comes down to understanding who God is and who saves us and what he is able to do, that it has nothing to do with who we are or what we do. If you believe that a person can lose their salvation, then you, somewhere in your muddled thinking, there's the idea that you do something to be saved and to keep yourself saved. So it is no longer of God, it is of you. And that is not what the scripture teaches. We saw, as I mentioned a minute ago, that the word praharizo, translated predestined, translated wrongly, uh, has to do with to uh, be ordained ahead of time, or that though it actually means those who are in Christ are appointed to a mission. It's a corporate designation, a corporate appointment. And this is according to the counsel of God's will, that is, he within the framework of his thinking. But his thinking is a thinking based on omniscience. We can't grasp his omniscience. He knows all the knowable. He knows everything that could be, should be, ought to be, might have been. 
And there is nothing that is outside the purview of his knowledge. He never learns anything. He never forgets anything. He doesn't really have a chronological process to the development of his plan and his thinking because it was all instantly there from all eternity. That blows our mind. We think that, well, God's thinking it through in this process, and we communicate it that way. It's just an anthropopathic that that is a way of talking about God's uh, actions and his thinking in human terms so that we can grasp it. But there really is no chronological development within his thinking or the development of his plan. He didn't think one day, I'm going to do this, and oh, that might make sense to do this and that. It was all always known to God, instantly, intuitively, absolutely, and we can't grasp it. So Paul explains it this way. It's according to the deliberation of his thinking, his the desire to save those who trust in Christ. Then we came to verse 12, and verse 12 said that, that we who first hoped in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This is the second statement, the second statement of praise, or the second doxological statement in this barakah, or this blessing statement, and it expresses the purpose Now, when we look at this, we see that the purpose is that we who hoped. Now, what you read in New King James Version is we who trust. Sometimes the concept of trust and hope are very close together, but it is not the word for trust. It is pra-elpizo from elpizo is the root meaning to hope. The noun is elpis, and hope is a confident expectation. And the we indicates the Jews. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is that there's a certain amount of confusion, I think, in many of the commentaries. They don't think that Paul starts to think about, talk about we and you as we Jewish believers and you Gentile believers until he gets down to Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. But there's nothing contextual to indicate that that's when he starts using we and you in that way. I believe that he's building an argument. He's starting at this stage, and he's already hinting at the fact that something was taking place among we Jews, and now you Gentiles are participating in that, so that now I'm teaching you that all of us are one in the body of Christ, so that now as we read this, You and I read this in the 21st century. We think, well, we're all one in the body of Christ. But at the time Paul was writing this to the Ephesian believers, the Jewish background believers were just really in that 20 or 30-year period struggling to come to grips with the fact that the Jewish people were no longer the, the people of God in this dispensation and that God was including Gentiles equally within this new entity called the body of Christ or the church. Now, the church isn't a replacement for Israel. God is still going to fulfill his promises and prophecies to Israel, and there will be a return to a focus on Israel when we get to that seven-year period that's part of the, that is the last seven years in God's plan for Israel that's described in Daniel 9. And this is one reason that the church must be raptured before the tribulation, is because the tribulation is the time of Jacob's wrath. It's, that's a focus on Israel. It is not a focus on the church. And God is going to shift back to an emphasis on Israel after the rapture of the church, but he's going to remove the church so that he can restore that focus on the Jewish people during the tribulation period. So when Paul writes here that we who first hoped in Christ, he's talking, okay, this is historically what happened. We Jews first trusted in Christ, day of Pentecost, uh, the first ten chapters or so in in, uh, Acts, That's the period he's talking about. And then when he shifts to the you, he's going to be talking to them as Gentiles who are now being brought into the body of Christ. So we, Gentile, I mean Jewish believers, first hoped in Christ, and that should be to the 
uh, praise of his glory, and should be too in the Greek indicates the purpose of being made a possession. It's got to express the purpose of a verb, and it, it, it goes back to verse 11 that uh, we were made a possession. That's the main verb. We, why were we made a possession? We were made a possession for the praise of God's glory. And so that is the focal point here that, that our new ownership and the glory of God who owns us should be manifest in our, in our lives. This is to the praise of his glory and that idea expresses his essence. The word glory is often a word that was used to just summarize all of God's character, all of his essence, all of who God is. And so we demonstrate in our lives how glorious God's character is. It is This whole section is so God-centered, God-focused. And that's why we live is for him, and we don't live for us. And we struggle with that on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis that we are not here to live for ourselves and to please our the lust patterns of our sin nature, which wars against our soul, but we are here to serve him and to glorify him. Now we come into the next verse, new material, and this is another, shall we say, difficult passage to translate. We have to translate it correctly before we understand what it's saying. I mean, that's just, just basic. That's why I take the time to go through the original languages because even among uh, English translations, and I'm going to point some out here as we go through this, you will find quite a discrepancy in the way they have translated these passages. And sometimes it's because there's some ambiguity in the Hebrew or, or the Greek, and other times it's because there's ambiguity between the translator's ears. And so we have to uh, go through these things. No one is free from biases or prejudice or presuppositions that they bring to the translation of a text, and any good translator is going to try to identify those and avoid those uh, traps and minefields as he goes through uh, his translation. But here we have, I'm just going to read it as it's stated in the New King James, and then we'll start uh, analyzing it. In him... Okay, let I change that now. In him you also trusted. Notice the word trusted is in italics. That's because it's not there in the original. The translators of the King James, the New King James, thought that it was carrying on the same idea of the main verb in the previous verse, uh, that we, had, uh, we were the first to trust in him or hope in him. And so they supplied it here, but it's not necessary. In fact, it's wrong. Uh, but it reads, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now let me just point out a couple of things that's not readily evident if you're looking at the English but it is readily evident if you're looking at, the, at a Greek uh, text. The first phrase in the Greek text is in ho, which means in whom. It's translated in him at the beginning of verse 13, and I think that the translators of the New King James translated it this way back in 1-7. In him is the same phrase. It should be in whom, and it's referring back to Christ. But to clarify that it is about Christ, they translated it in him. And the same at the beginning of verse 11 where it says in him, uh, that should be in whom. It's all talking about being in Christ. But in, notice something, it says in him here, and down here it's in whom. It's the exact same phrase and exact same words and structure in both places. And it's inconsistent, and you lose the sense of what's happening here when it's not translated uh, translated correctly. Also, there's going to be a problem that we'll see with uh, 
the word trusted. Is that what's really going on here? And we see, I've shifted it in the next slide, but you have after you heard the word of truth. And that's fuzzy because it really means when. It's a temporal participle. It means when you heard the word of truth, when you believed. It's talking about those things happened at the same time, not that there's a distance of time between them. So it clarifies it a lot. And it tells us that when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, here's a couple of other translations for you that illustrate the distinction. And I don't agree with totally with either one of them, although they bring out uh, the major issues that I'm talking about. The first one is from the New American Standard, and it translates it in him, and then again in him down here, but it's in a different word order, so it gets a little uh, crazy, but it's still emphasizing that we were sealed in him. It's positional, and that's what we see here. So NASB says, in him you also, and then they also translated it after, which is fuzzy, listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then the next participle is translated, having also believed. And it it should have more of a template. It should have after or when there to clarify that participle, and it doesn't. You were sealed in him, that's positional, that's pretty good, with the Holy Spirit of promise. That last part is is, uh, pretty solid. The NET picks up on the fact that it shouldn't be after, but it should be when. So they translated it, and when you heard the word of truth, that is, at the time that you heard the gospel of your salvation, and then they use M dashes to set this off, which is very good, when you believed in Christ. So they're making the point that that this sealing by the Holy Spirit occurs when you heard the gospel, and it's at that time that you believed in Christ, and that's when you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that occurs later. And the reason that's important is when you get into some traditions in American Christianity, for example, in Pentecostalism, they put forth the idea that you got some things at the cross, and then when you dedicated your life or you committed your life to Jesus or you did some secondary act of yielding or something, then you got the rest of the package. So you had a two-step, not like dancing the Texas two-step. It was a two-step Christian life. But if you came out of a Baptist background, they actually had a third step in there. So you have two-steppers and three-steppers, and then it gets really confusing, and we're not going to go there this morning. So we're going to clarify this, and this is my translation trying to clean this up. In whom, literally it's in him, excuse me, literally it's in whom, but it's talking about our position in Christ. Both of these phrases, in whom, are identifying what we have in Christ. So the New King James translates it, in him you also trusted. And that makes it look like we're trusting in Christ. That misses the point. These are structurally parallel, and both of them are talking about what we heard. And there's no mention of trust at all. So that just added and confuses the whole thing. In whom you also, and you sense the excitement here that as Paul is building, he, he he's really just repeating himself, in him you also, and then he, he sort of goes to an ex- a side of explanation. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and your salvation... In whom, when you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The main idea here is that when you trusted in Christ, you were placed in him, and that identification with him was at the same time that you were sealed by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has several ministries in the life of every believer from the instant of salvation. The first is that he is baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are instantly identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the sense of the meaning baptism. Its literal denotative meaning is to be immersed. 
its connotative meaning is always identification with something. Sometimes identification with fire, sometimes identification with water, sometimes identification with a leader. Uh, the Israelites are baptized uh, in the cloud and in the sea. They didn't get wet, but they're identified with the cloud, which is God, and they're identified with the sea, that's the Red Sea, so that they become placed into Moses. They're, they become uh, in Moses as opposed to being in Christ. And so that's that's stated in 1 Corinthians uh, 10.3. But here we have a parallel type of statement. We're baptized by means of the Spirit, and in that time, at the same time, we also receive a seal that we're identified as God's possession. That's what a seal does. We'll get into that in just a minute. So... In the first line, in whom, that is in Christ, you also were, and what it's going to, the, the, where it fills the rest of that sentence is you also were sealed by the spirit of promise. But he has a couple of other things that he injects into his, his statement. When you heard, so it's a temporal participle from the word akua, which means to hear, and it has the implication of responding to something in obedience. It's not just having your uh, auditory nerves stimulated. If you listened, you probably heard this from your parents. You did something, and they told you not to, and they said you didn't listen. And they said, no, I heard you. No, what you mean in a lot of times is you didn't apply what I told you. So that's what uh, he's talking about here. When you applied the word of truth, the message of the gospel, when you heard it and obeyed it and trusted in Jesus, and then he calls it the word of truth. Often the word here is not talking about literally the written word. It's talking about the message, the the word of truth. And it's called the word of truth. The word for truth is the uh, Greek word aletheia. And the Greek word aletheia has the idea of, of that which is stable, that which is conforms to reality, that's an idea that is completely rejected by modern philosophy. They, there is no such thing that conforms to reality because all reality is interpreted subjectively. So you can't know what is real. Uh, thanks to Immanuel Kant in the late uh, 18th century, you can only know your perceptions of things. That's how modern man works. But the scripture says, no, you can know things as they actually are. You can know reality, and that starts by understanding the revelation of God. So the word of truth is defined here through the, uh, through the phrase, the gospel of your salvation. The word for gospel means the good news. It's good news because first there's bad news. And the bad news is that we're born spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead, we don't have real life. We don't have eternal life. And when we die, there will be condemnation and eternity in the lake of fire. Again and again, that's emphasized in Scripture. But the good news is God provided a solution. The good news is we can have life. The good news is that we can have an eternal destiny in heaven where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things have passed away. The good news is that God loves you in such a way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news is you don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to repent of your sin. You don't have to do any number of other things that people want to join to faith. You just believe it's faith alone. Nothing accompanies. As soon as you connect faith to faith in baptism, faith in repentance, faith in works, you destroy the gospel, and it's no longer the path to salvation, but the path to slavery of legalism. So when you heard the word of truth, it's the gospel of your salvation, what did you do? You believed. So that's the next word, when you believed. 
And this is the Greek word pistuo, the verb, which is used over uh, 95 times in the Gospel of John to indicate the only condition for eternal salvation. And the word repent never occurs in the Gospel of John. He says, these are written that you might what? That you might work your way to heaven. That's not what it says. These are written that you might improve your life. Nope. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by reforming your life. No, it doesn't say that. By believing, you may have life through his name. It is faith alone in Christ alone, not in Christ and the church, not in Christ in works, but in Christ alone. So here Paul is saying the same thing. It is when you believed, and at that instant that you believed, you are then sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And this is the Greek word sphragizo, and it has the idea of, of sealing. Now, the idea of sealing is very interesting because there are different kinds of seals and different purposes for seals in the Scripture. The primary idea is to provide security, like eternal security. It's interesting how that word uh, connects there. We are, we are sealed, and this provides a security. And one example that we have of one kind of sealing is after Jesus was buried in the tomb, and they rolled the stone in front of the tomb to make sure nobody would steal the body, in other words, to secure the body so that no one could take it, the Roman soldiers put a seal on the tomb. It's the same word. So a seal has to do with marking something in such a way that it is uh, protected and it's identified and secured. Now, another way, uh, actually the third meaning listed in the Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker lexicon is to mark with a seal as a means of identification so that the mark denoting, denoting ownership also carries with it the protection by the owner. That's an impressive statement. Because that's not just saying that there's a mark here of, of a guarantee, which is part of the, the, the nuances, part of the meaning, meanings related to Sfragizo, but it's the idea that this mark shows ownership. It shows a, uh, an ownership so that the owner is protecting that which he owns. Now, for years, I think there's a great cultural analogy in our history for this. And it, back in the days of the, of the Old West when the great cattle ranches were developing and there were the cattle drives, in order to mark and identify ownership of cattle, because initially they didn't have barbed wire, or as we say in Texas, bob wire. Uh, they didn't have bob wire out there to uh, fence off their property. So everybody's cattle just milled around and mixed up together and they would have uh, roundups and they would have to, you know, decide whose was whose. So they would brand their cattle. And of course, one rancher's bull would get with another rancher's heifer and you would have a lot of calves born and they weren't branded. And so then they would have to divide up the calves in some way, but they would brand the cattle. And each owner would have a specific mark uh, or symbol, uh, you know, a circle with a bar or, or a letter with a line through it or all kinds of different uh, uh uh, marks were used in order to indicate the brand and the ownership, and so they would mark their cattle that way. It indicated ownership and provided security for them as to their possessions so that they could not, uh, wouldn't lose their possessions at roundup time and things of that nature. And so it's a great comparison. God seals us, he brands us as a mark of his ownership. 
And that brand can't be taken away. And in the Old West, another thing happened that when cattle were rustled, then the rustlers would come along and they would use maybe a cinch ring or something else in order to lay another line or symbol or something or a circle around uh, around the brand so that they could counterfeit the brand and change it. And see, that also happens with great analogy for eternal security. There are a lot of Christians who want to act like they're not gods anymore. And so they want to change the brand. And they look like they're not owned by God. But in the, in, in, in the ranching times, what would happen is if you had a controversy and you thought this cattle had been rustled, there was one way to prove it. But you had to kill the cattle. And then you skinned it. And then when you reversed the hide, you could see whether the brand had been changed. And so you could then identify who the true owner was, even though it had been counterfeited. And that's what happens to some Christians, is that they try to change the brand, but when it comes to judgment time, it's going to be discovered that God still owns them, and they will not lose their salvation. So it's a tremendous picture of eternal security, that no matter what it may look like on the outside, we all know Christians who live as if they never heard the gospel and they don't know anything about Scripture and they're in complete rebellion against God and they act like they're a child of the devil, the reality will be when they die, it will be demonstrated that they have the seal of the Spirit and they cannot and will not lose their salvation. So this is a tremendous passage for eternal security to help us understand what has taken place here. Now, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology states the real importance of the seal is a legal one. Isn't that interesting how from the first chapter of Genesis uh, on, we see these legal analogies to salvation, that God sets up a legal framework, words like justification, uh, reconciliation, uh, propitiation, forgiveness. These are all terms that come out of a courtroom uh, environment, confession, all of these. And so this is another word that has a legal sense. It shows that the owner has put his mark on the possessions, his uh, beasts, and therefore guards his property against theft. To that extent, one can call it a protecting sign or a guarantee. So that's the idea behind the seal. It's used, this word sfragizo is used in two other key passages in the New Testament. The first one also in Ephesians. In the second part of the book, which is where application comes, where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom, that is by the Spirit, you have been sealed to the day of redemption. It doesn't say you have been sealed until you really blow it with certain bad sins. It says you are sealed until the day of redemption when that redemption is finally realized. And 2 Corinthians one twenty two, Paul says, who also has sealed us, that is God has sealed us, and given us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So that is that idea of a guarantee fits into this, and that's the word we pick up in verse 14. We won't get there this morning, but just to let you know what's coming, that it says, the spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So that's our guarantee, and the inheritance has to do with our eternal possession of eternal life as heirs of God. So I just want to close out by giving you a few key verses that reinforce what the Bible teaches about eternal security. First of all, a definition derived from looking at these various passages. In terms of the definition, we read, it's the work of God toward the believer. Now, right there, we have to stop. It is God's work. Securing our salvation isn't our work. God's the one, as we'll see, who keeps us. We do not keep ourselves. We are kept by Christ. It's his power that keeps us, not our power. It's the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone 
which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost. It can't be terminated. It can't be abrogated. God's not going to go back on his word. can't be nullified or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Somebody can be can trust in Christ as their Savior today, wake up tomorrow and go back to the same pigsty that they were living in before and continue in immorality or continue in idolatry or continue in criminality or continue as a gossip or continue as a reprobate or continue as an arrogant person and their life never changes and so you'll find Christians who said well I just can't believe so and so is a Christian well that's because you don't have an understanding of the gospel that you can be saved and and live your the whole rest of your life as a newborn babe that never grows but you're still we're al- are spiritually alive. And so there's nothing that we can do to reverse one act of faith. It just takes one second. Somebody says, I believe that. They think in their soul, I believe that. Ten seconds later, they go, no, no, I don't. Well, too late, buddy. You're saved. You're going to end up in heaven. Nobody's going to believe it when they see you, but... But you're there. In fact, uh, one story that will surprise all of us is, uh, unfortunately, can't find the paper anymore, but my good friend John Hintz, pastor of Tucson Bible Church, had a paper that he had discovered that was written by Karl Marx during a brief period of time in his life as a teenager that he was a Christian, and it was a paper he wrote on justification by faith alone. And it was spot on and absolutely orthodox. He was born into a Jewish home. When he was about 13 or 14, his father converted to Christianity. And so he finished out the last couple of years in what we would call high school as a Christian. And then he completely gave it up and went in the devil's direction. And so that'll be fascinating. You may end up in heaven living down the street from Karl Marx. And that'll that'll surprise him as well as you. Now we have some passages that back this up. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Paul says, faithful is the word. We can trust in this. This is reliable. And then he has four statements, four if clauses, and they're all first-class conditions, if and we assume the first part of truth. If we died with him, that's what happens with the baptism by the Holy Spirit. We're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And if we died with him, we shall live with him. Second statement, if we endure, that is, if you endure in suffering as a believer and you don't give it up, uh, then there's going to be rewards. We shall rule with him. On the other hand, if you don't endure, if you deny him, if you give him up when they threaten to burn you at the stake then he will deny us. That is rewards. We haven't endured, so we're not going to rule with him. And then the last statement sums it up. If we are unfaithful, that is, if we're faithless and we fail, he remains faithful to his promise and to his word, for he cannot deny himself. And that's a great promise that no matter how badly we screw up, and let me tell you, I think we screw up a lot more than we think we do because we have all these really subtle mental attitude sins of pride and arrogance and we're constantly judging people and we don't want to admit it. And, and, but because it's a mental attitude sin and it's camouflaged well, we think that we're poly pure heart and we're not going to, be, we're going to be a lot better than the guy down the street who's got a lot of overt sins. And the issue is God sees the heart, and he knows what's really going on, and all sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. John six forty seven. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. It's an eternal possession, period, over and out. He doesn't say, he who believes in me and stays with it. There's no conditions attached. He who believes in me has eternal life. In Jude one twenty four, Jude says, Now to him, that is to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. God's omnipotence is what keeps you in the family of God, not your will, but his will, his power. 
uh, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God is the one who keeps you. One of my favorite passages on this is Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate. No decision you make, no decision somebody else makes, no act, no thought can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Once we're in Christ, we're locked down forever. John ten twenty eight. Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Dogmatic assertion. And no one, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. God's grip is absolute and omnipotent. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the certainty we have of our salvation, recognizing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And because he paid the penalty and it was paid in full, because you knew every single sin each of us would ever commit, you didn't forget one. Every single sin was nailed to the cross. Every single sin was paid for. It's paid for. The issue is not our sin. The issue is, do we trust in Jesus or not? And once we trust in him, at that instant, we are made a new creature in Christ. We have all these things happen. And, and you're not someone who's going to give it to us one second, the next day take it back. It's irreversible, this new creation. And, Father, we are so thankful for that. And, Father, we pray that those who listen today, that if they've never trusted in Christ, that they would come to understand the vital necessity of taking care of this eternal issue, that we have no guarantee that we will be alive in two hours. We have no guarantee that we will be alive in three days. We have no guarantee that we'll be alive in in 10 years. And so we need to trust in Christ now, believe that he died for us, and that's all that's required for eternal life because Jesus paid it all. And once we trust we realize that we're not our, not our own, even though we still think we are. We're not our own, but we are yours. We become your possession, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we are to live for you as your slave, as your servant, because that is why we were saved, for good works, as we'll see in Ephesians 2.10. And, Father, we just pray that you challenge each of us with the truth of, of your word. In Christ's name, amen.